0: Hello, my fellow Westorians. It's Aziz here with a special bonus episode. We could do a whole episode on all the things that has made Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire a worldwide hit, but one of those things we would focus on, if we did such an episode, would be that it seems to offer something for everyone. Some love the fantasy elements, some love the real-world allegories and parallels, Some love the interpersonal conflicts and witnessing the various characters' tragedies and triumphs. Some are drawn to the acting, cinematography, or writing. Some love all of the above, or most of the above. One of the more conspicuous elements people love about Game of Thrones I didn't mention is war. Battles, strategy, tactics, logistics, morale, weaponry, terrain, weather. And that's not nearly all. There's a lot to dig into with just this one subtopic. And that's exactly the sort of thing we love to do here at the History of Westeros podcast. Detailed analysis from people who have done their homework. But I'm understating this. I never had to write a book for a homework assignment in school. So homework is putting this mildly. With us today are two esteemed writers that have done just that. Written a book called Winning Westeros, How Game of Thrones Explains Modern Military Conflict. i got to say, it's really good. I haven't read the whole thing yet. It's a great book that deserves a lot of attention, a lot of focus. And, but what I've read so far, which is mostly your guys' chapters, has been really excellent. So without any further ado, let me introduce you guys. First off, author, award-winning strategist, Matt Cavanaugh. Welcome.
1: Hey, yeah, it's fantastic to be here. Thank you.
0: Right on. And you are the co-founder of the Modern War Institute, is that right?
1: I am. I am. It's a small think tank um, in upstate New York, north of the city, about an hour, um, at West Point, uh, where I also uh, went to college myself at the least fun educational higher learning institute in america and (laughs) uh and then and then i went I, i was teaching there from 2012 to 2015 when the modern war institute came together so yeah uh it's it's four years old at this point now
0: right on that's very cool um i actually have a slight connection to that my grandfather was also a west point grad and uh so i've heard a few stories but yeah it, it,
1: he probably had just as much fun as i did <laughs> yes it hasn't cha- it hasn't changed much in that regard
0: yeah i think uh, he has said some similar things it's true <laughs> and our other guest welcome max brooks thank you good to be here uh I,
2: I think we should we should for the record just state our our respective official titles
0: yes uh, we should
2: like, you know, matt kavanaugh <laughs> He is has two titles. He is Lieutenant Colonel Kavanaugh, active duty, United States Army. He is also Dr. Kavanaugh, who just got his Ph.D. So those Oh, are see, I saw the and, Lieutenant
0: Colonel part, but I didn't see the doctor part, so thank you for adding that. That's It's important to have the title straight around here. That's very true.
2: Oh, oh, very much so. Now, and my title is just some guy who writes about zombies and stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well let And me, that's why that's why we love him.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well let me get some obligatory gushing out of the way. I I was introduced to World War Z through my mother who was listening to the audiobook on a long, long road trip, and I got sucked in. I really liked it. And ever since, I've been adamant that that is the way the a Song of Ice and Fire audiobook should be done. I'm really uh, I love Roy Dotrice who did the Song of Ice and Fire audiobooks, but it's just too much to ask one guy to do hundreds of voices. So having uh, multiple actors do it, I was just it was great. I really loved that. So it's not what we're here to talk about, but I had to say that. <laughs>
2: no problem.
0: Right on. Well, a uh, a concept that you guys dig into uh, very deep is that while Game of Thrones is relatively new on the world stage as far as history goes, using popular stories as cultural touchstones is as old as human history itself, and that concept is introduced immediately in Winning Westeros. Um, I took the liberty of grabbing a quote from the foreword to kind of get people excited because this is something that I think is right along the lines of things that we discuss fairly often in the fandom. So bear with me real quick. I'll read this quote. The foreword was written by ad- retired Admiral James Tavridis, and I just have to quote part of it here. It's so good. What if questions are the root of strategic thinking? Because the outcomes are not a matter of historical record, I have always found these questions easier to ask when reading works of fiction. Tracing the imaginary career of Captain Jack Aubrey through O'Brien's novels, I constantly asked myself what I would do in the situations he faced. Time and again, I found that this mental exercise paid off when I encountered similar situations in real life. The Aegis Destroyers I sailed in might have been much more high-tech than the wooden men of war of Captain Aubrey's day, but the challenges of discipline, the tension of preparing for battle, and the pressures of command are enduring elements of naval life. This idea, of course, applies equally well to film and television. There is much leadership to be get- gleaned in superb films like the Kane Mutiny Court Martial or the long-format television such as The Winds of War. In today's world of series television, there is no more global strategic plotline than that of Game of Thrones. I encourage all readers to apply the what-if technique to these chapters while reading, and not only to the fictional circumstances they describe, but also to the author's conclusions. After all, one of the greatest benefits of reading fiction is the variety of interpretations it allows. We all know what happened at Trafalgar. But Westeros offers nearly unlimited opportunities to ask ourselves, "What if?" The lessons from the struggles to dominate this fictitious world echo quite clearly onto our own. So, first of all, first, that's a fantastic quote. It's it's a really well written, and it nails a lot of what we love about what Game of Thrones does uh, in terms of just inspiring discussions. But how did you guys? Uh, Just before we talk about the material itself, how did you guys organize all these people? There's so many incredible authors who contributed. You have Admiral Stavridis, but also generals, policy advisors, counter-insurgency specialists, and also authors of sci-fi and fantasy. So it's a really amazing group you've assembled. How did you manage to pull that off?
1: We had them at gunpoint. (laughs) So so really, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fantastic question. And for I played the ringleader to some extent, but it wasn't hard to get the bear to dance in the circus. Mm. You know, uh, basically, this is a group of people that, uh, like a lot of academic writers, um, they write about subjects for a relatively narrow and small audience uh one of our writers for example uh Colonel Liam Collins is the director of the Modern War Institute um his PhD dissertation was on counterinsurgency uh but it's it's not exactly something that you would want to read uh and you know i've heard Max refer to it as sort of printed ambien uh <laughs> that would just knock you know probably knock an elephant over but uh when we get an opportunity to share some of these ideas in a different way for a wider audience, we dump that chance. And, um, no one's making gobs of money on this project. Uh, but every single writer that contributed, uh, was inspired and excited to contribute because it was an opportunity to take counterinsurgency or air power, um, or even bigger ideas related to war and human conflict and, and put them in a context that people are already interested to learn and talk about. And so, I mean, really like it wasn't hard to get, you know, almost three dozen writers to contribute um, based on hundreds of years of strategic experience, literally hundreds of years of strategic experience. So,
0: well, yeah, when you put it that way, and it I, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and I should say that we should, uh, we should
2: make sure that your listeners know this is a sequel to our first strategy book. And the, the first book was Strategy Strikes Back, and it was teaching strategy through Star Wars. And this all came about because of Matt. Because, oh. Matt, uh, why, don't, why don't you tell them where just the idea of doing a, a book like this came
0: from? Oh, yeah, we'd love to hear that. Yeah, so um
1: I mentioned I taught at West Point from 2012 to 2015 and you know I'm uh I've got young children uh I am approaching the middle part of my life and you know uh it's hard sometimes to have a conversation about military strategy with college kids with cadets and so there's a cultural you know a, an age gap there um, and then from that assignment at West Point, I took an assignment in Korea where I was working with Korean army officers every day. Okay. And there's a even bigger cultural gap there, right? Yeah. And the you know, one of the wars we all around the world know something about is Star Wars. It crosses <laughs> languages, cultures, generations. Um, and what I learned pretty quickly is that it really speeds up the conversation if you start with a common frame of reference or a common terrain, so to speak. And, and it's not just for cadets or colonels or Koreans. It's for, it's for civilians too. Uh, right now, uh, you know, uh, game of Thrones is owning the pop culture conversation and we can use that popularity. We can leverage that popularity to have conversations with people, you know, people with short haircuts like myself, uh, <laughs> with, with people with slightly longer haircuts, and it can be mutually beneficial and interesting and engaging. So um, we started with Star Wars, and we basically took it up to Mach 2 with uh, Winning Westeros. About half of our writers from the Star Wars book came over uh, to work on Winning Westeros with us, and it's been, I mean, it's it's been a, just as fun a project to continue uh in westeros
0: that's excellent um i think a lot of our listeners would love to read the star wars one as well because frankly there's a lot of crossover in star wars fandom and game of thrones fandom not surprising in general and of course because they're just so popular uh that's a great point you know the more popular something is the the more common ground everyone has and and that by itself is extremely powerful um well, let's uh, let's before one last question before we get into the, the your chapters. I want to know um, how did you guys come to find Game of Thrones in the first place? Uh, Matt, you go first.
1: You, you know, for me, uh, my my wife and I started watching probably about the time the third season was on the air, and we jumped in and then went to the you know to the start and then caught ourselves back up. So we we weren't with the sort of, um, initial viewing tranche. Uh, so we were behind the power curve and I did pick up the first couple of books as we, you know, we started going. Um, the reason that I think that we were a little slow on the uptake is that, uh, we're not prudes or anything, but like violent shows sometimes turn us back. Yeah. Uh, and so that was a, to be honest, that was a little bit of a deterrent. The other thing is, like, uh, with, with little girls running around the house, um, the idea of some of those, those, you know, those early scenes from the show, my kids, you know, their, their eyeballs, uh, their faces might have melted from, you know, like, (laughs) like in Indiana Jones, like when, uh, when they see the Ark of the Covenant. So we were slow, but what you realize pretty quickly, I think, with the show and with the books is that there's such a fantastic story there. And as we went along watching, I, I mean, I would see little moments either on screen or pop off the page that I had seen in history books, in textbooks, and in things that I do at work when it comes to military strategy. Dragons. To me, look like air power, but interestingly enough, Max sees them as the uh, as the NKVD or a, 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 or a, a secret police. Um, the the Battle of the Bastards is canine yeah. from the Second Punic War. Corpses that you see stacked up—that's 1864 in Virginia in our Civil War. Um, you know, th- th- there there are little moments that just jumped jumped out at me. And it made me really feel like I was watching sort of a remix of history, like a very artful remix of history. And the, you know, what really sealed it for me, at least, and what's made me a fan and and kept me through the series is that the human dynamics in conflict, you you can spot them from a mile away and they've portrayed them so well. Yes, they're souped up. I mean, you know, it's souped up, you know. George R. R. Martin said he went to Hadrian's Wall in England, stood on that, and that was kind of his initial moment of inspiration for yeah. the wall. <laughs> um, so, of course, it's souped up, but um, but it's 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 a reflection of reality, and so it, that's really what grabbed uh, me and my wife. We, you know, we'll be watching, we'll be we'll be we're tuned in the moment it starts. Each one of these, last yeah, episodes. we're not a few
0: hours away from episode two, huh? <laughs> That's well, what about you, Max? It. How did you find Game of Thrones? Uh, certainly, some people would assume it had something to do with the zombie connection, but surely there's a little more to it, if not a lot more. It did, <laughs> it did,
2: it did, but not, it came, yes, it was the zombie connection, but not in the okay. way you would think. It came by uh, George R. R. Martin oh, himself.
0: How about that?
2: You know, uh, many, many years ago, I was on a panel at a comic book convention, and we were talking uh, to the audience about... You know, just storytelling in general. And they put me next to this, like, old Santa Claus-looking <laughs> dude in a Greek hat. And they were like, yeah, if you, most of you may not know this gentleman, George R. R. Martin. Uh, his, his books are about to be a wonderful new HBO series. And, you know, the, the people in the audience are yawning <laughs> and leaving because there's like a, you know, there's a Naruto panel next door or something like that. <clears throat> and so they, nobody was paying much attention. Except for, I guess, the hardcore fans who'd actually read the books. And hearing George talk about characters and Mm. about... You can't have infallible people make a good story. They have to make bad decisions or else you're not going to go anywhere. And so as a writer, I was entranced by the writer. And I thought, I want to see what came out of this guy's brain.
0: So he hit me. Right on. That's great. Uh, George is really quite something um i met him at a convention where he simply walked into a hotel room where there was a party sat down on a chair grabbed a beer like he wasn't a famous person you know he just walked right in and everybody's just kind of staring and
2: (laughs) yeah and he's an interesting guy because he was not an overnight sensation he was breaking rocks for 90 percent of his career yeah and then suddenly he's an overnight sensation and and george the man is an interesting study in fame which we can we can get into much later and then i when i got into the show the visceral response i had to the show is the exact same response i have now which is what prompted me to write the book uh because it's all about the the rightful heir right the rightful king i mean literally the last episode we just saw uh when they were like you've got to tell him the truth Jon Snow, you're the rightful king. (laughs) And my answer to that is, no, you're not. Because there is no rightful king. Nobody has the right to be king. No one person has the right, just because of accident of birth, to have life or death decisions over millions of people. That is just absolutely wrong. And so that's why i
0: watch the show and that's what my chapter is. It sure is. I your chapter is called Micah's parents didn't get a vote and you absolutely talk about things like power dynamics and taking democracy for granted who stands up for the oppressed um, I grabbed a quote here from you that I think is really sums it up, parts of it really well. In 2018, Game of Thrones was a fantasy. In 1776, it was everyday life. The framers of our Constitution saw what happens when a handful of drunken, incestuous, and in the case of King George III, mentally ill mob dons have direct control over millions of subjects. That is why we are citizens, not subjects. That is why our Constitution is our king. Really well said. So, uh, so relevant to, uh, right now and other periods in history as well, of course king george the third mentally ill that's a you know that's a direct parallel to the mad king Ares, who was uh, you know king george wasn't as cruel as uh, but that's the whole dialing up you talked about
2: oh yeah and, and and you know for for democracy and i saw that i see this a lot and i saw it in the election of 2016 where i talked to people who kept saying things like i just want to shake things up you know i just want to shake it up and Being a student of history and also of the world, because that world of dark tyranny didn't go away. You know, the majority of the human race now lives in darkness and fear. They don't get to speak their minds. They don't get to be themselves. They don't get lawyers and judges and a free press. They all can risk having their mica chopped up by the ruler's hounds and dumped on their doorstep. And so when I have people rail against the deep state or the system or the establishment, I say, you better get down on your knees and thank the souls of people who
0: bled before you to give you the right to let your voice be counted. Well said. And just on the case of Micah specifically, too, it's a common debate in the fandom what, uh, Sandor's duty, his, the morality of, his, of him being someone, uh, trapped in between, ordered to do this killing. Whereas, uh, as you say, who gave the king the right to do these things in the first place, to make these, uh, uh, laws and to define what's right for everybody?
2: I don't think he's the enemy there. I don't think the king's hound is as nearly as guilty. I agree. I would agree. Because Ned Ned Stark knows better. And that was actually the crux of the prosecution at the Nuremberg Mm. trials, where all those stupid, uneducated, hate-filled, shit-eating camp guards at Auschwitz were not nearly as guilty as the educated elite of Germany, who knew better and knew what could happen and agreed to it mm. anyway. And so when Ned Stark is lying in bed and sort of whines and moans and sighs and goes, ah, King takes what he wants. <laughs> he takes what he wants because you mm. let him. You know it's wrong, and you do it anyway. You let evil flourish. And so he's the guilty party in that.
0: And this is a great uh, way to explain... Part of what's going on in this in this book, In Winning Westeros, is that there's so many authors and so many takes that they, you know, you guys don't all agree with each other on everything, and that's a good thing because it allows people to see intelligent arguments from different people with different perspectives, and people may find themselves agreeing with two different arguments that may somewhat contradict each other just because uh, there's parts of it that they, that they can uh, gel with or that mean something to them. So let's uh, let's let's take this a little bit further. As far as uh, the the series itself, we've gotten Tyrion and Danny and a few others have hinted at this, maybe not directly, but have suggested that maybe this isn't the right system of government. Maybe uh, like Danny's comment about breaking the wheel, um, and Tyrion's talk about how you know you never know what you're going to get with monarchs and things like that. Do you guys think uh, this is a question for both of y'all? Do you think that the Iron Throne? Will exist at the end of the series. And, uh, if, if you do think so, I'd love to hear your guess on who might sit it at the end. Let's go with Matt first.
1: Well, you know what? I, I, actually, I gotta pitch it to Max, cause he's got a really good theory about what should happen okay. in Iron Throne. My,
2: honestly, my dream ending is that, you know, Daenerys and John, they win the war, and yay for the power couple, John Eris and, they get up there and the and the crowd cheers and says, "Thank you, we've but you've done your time, your term of service is over. You have to step down. We need to hold elections and we need to melt the iron throne down into ballots.
0: Into by That's that's very specific. I like that. I've heard the concept of melting down the iron throne, but I haven't ever heard anyone discuss what they could turn that metal into. That's a great idea. And uh, and Matt, what do you? What about you? <laughs> You know, um, so this one's a little bit different.
1: This, this comes out of my epilogue, but, and it, and it actually, it relates to why we did the book. You see very clearly what happens when a society, you know, gets cut off, uh, from its military to some extent that protects them and its, uh, academics. Mm. And you see that with the Night's Watch at the beginning of the series and in the books. They're neglected. They're small. They're sort of, I mean, every, no one cares to some extent, and they're a very small sliver of society. When they see the threat that's coming, they try to—they send ravens. They try to warn the rest of the uh, seven kingdoms, and they're sort of laughed off. You know, no one really listens. And you get the same thing when Samwell Tarly goes to the Citadel to become a maester. He tells them what he's seen with his own two eyes, and to some extent, uh, the 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 maesters, the academics of Westeros. Um, choose to sort of stay separated and locked up in their iron tower. And we see what happens when the soldiers and the scholars of a world are disconnected from the rest of society. And so in a lot of ways, uh, whatever happens in Throne, frankly, in both the series and in the real world, I want to see a greater connection between uh, the people that do what I do for a living and uh, the the people and the rulers that those people put in place, and hopefully those rulers that those people put in place, uh, like Max said, are are voted for and decided on as a larger body than than just by blood.
0: Right on. Well said. I wanted to run through a couple of uh, other details from the book, and then we'll talk a little bit about um, one of your chapters, Matt. Uh, it looks like. You guys said about, did you say about 20 different authors? Is that right, what I heard before?
1: No, well, we, we, th- we got 30, man. We got wow, 30. yes. I didn't... Well, uh, yeah. I, yeah, so there's there's definitely, you know, um, this, this book may not be everyone's cup of tea, but uh, there is something in that book for everyone, and I can pretty much guarantee that anyone that picks it up is going to find several chapters that they really, really enjoy because it will give them a new perspective.
0: I agree. Oh, so, yeah. And I, in fact, I grabbed a few chapter names just uh, to tease those uh, concepts and to back up what you're saying here, because I definitely agree. It's, as, just as an aside, too, it was funny to me. I saw that there were so many authors and I, saw, I started counting and I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to count. I'll just ask them. <laughs> it was so, such a big list. Yeah. Um, OK, so, the, yeah, the, the book is divided into four cent- uh, war centric sections. You've got people in war, technology in war, combat in war. Strategy in War, and a few of the chapter titles that stood out to me, uh, The Mother of Dragons, Defiant Leadership for Uncertain Times, Insights from Machiavelli for Those Who Seek the Iron Throne, Weapons of Mass Destruction in Westeros and Beyond, and The Wildlings at the Wall, When Climate Drives Conflict, that last one's a, a, a big one, uh, and it's been in my mind recently and off and on since the beginning of the series because I think a lot of people noticed the climate change allegories in uh, Game of Thrones, The Song of Ice and Fire. But it's, uh, it's come up even more recently because uh, a lot of people are starting to learn around the world that while climate change is politicized, it's not very it's not nearly as politicized in the military. The military takes it very seriously as as far as my understanding goes. Uh Matt, you would know better than that, uh than me on that. Is that is that true?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, um I obviously because of the uniform I wear I have to be somewhat guarded of in course. what I say. That being said, <laughs> there are aspects I Max you know you know, it's really funny because Max I just can rail on certain subjects that I I have to be relatively more careful with. That being said, um, the shift in the climate is a fact. Um, I live in Colorado, uh, where, uh, we look to California's fires and we see our future. There are, uh, and so, you know, hunting seasons are changing, uh, snow and rain accumulation are changing. The Arctic sea ice is melting and it's, uh, changing the environment in the far, far north. Um, and so, But I, while it's sometimes difficult to pin down specifics and how they interrelate about the shift in climate, one thing that we can learn more generally from the climate and the threat from the north in the White Walkers in Westeros is that there are things happening all the time, great distant events very far from us um that are you know that that are going to rock and change our world um, you know, so imagine sort of an unsuspecting shopkeeper in uh King's Landing from the north, the white walkers and the um, and you know, at one point that that person was worried about the free folk from beyond the wall. Um, there was a threat th- there, that threat is clearly growing, um, you know, and it's metastasized and it's gotten worse. And that person has no inkling or idea that a major change to her world is, is on its way. And to some extent you do see those, those parallels with the shift in the climate. Uh, we know things are changing. We don't know exactly how they'll change. We just know that they certainly won't change for the better. So, uh, you know, that's how I, that's generally I know. how well, I Max, about what about
0: your? Well, what, you, what do you think about and
1: it?
2: By, well, I mean, as far as climate change, but there is historical precedent for this. We, we know from the writings of Roman historians that Julius Caesar's grand, uh, great uncle, Gaius Marius, saved Rome from wailing tribes of German barbarians, who had come from the north because mm-hmm. of climate change? We know that they had had years of inundation; they would had too much rain, too many floods, and their land was unsustainable. And then they packed up and moved, and they crashed into the Roman army because they liked they liked the Italian sun. And we see this <laughs> all the time. No, you <laughs> can't blame them for that, and you can't blame the refugee, their uh, climate refugees. Yeah which is a real thing now. There are, I mean, as a civilian, as an outsider, I can tell you that I go to a lot of strategic conferences and there's always a talk about what's going to happen with climate Mm. refugees because they're real and they exist. They are going to come to other societies. They're going to put pressure on those societies. They're going to create political movements. I mean, let's be very clear that the alt-right movement's greatest ally are these the waves of refugees that are coming to Europe because of the Syrian civil war. Uh, climate creates conflict, which creates refugees, which destabilize other societies. And we have to prepare for that. This is very real. Uh, and it is, there's a reason that Vladimir Putin put a Russian flag on the bottom of the Arctic ocean, because for the first time in hundreds and hundreds of years, the Arctic is in play. And, the Russians are, inven- are investing in uh, nuclear icebreakers. We know the Chinese are looking at them very carefully. For the first time, the Canadians have to invest in a submarine fleet. Uh, this is very, very real, and there's dollars and cents, and there's blood at stake. And it's not—it's
1: not about yeah. politics
2: anymore. This is a reality from from a national security and
1: point yeah, of view. Yeah, is if I can—if I can interject, just because this is what I think the great strength of fiction and film Mm. is, and you you hit that nail on the head with uh, Admiral Stavridis' forward, the line from it, you know, what-if questions are the root of strategic thinking. Um, This is Max's great work from World War Z. Uh, You know, if something terrible happens, insert whatever that terrible thing might be, How will this shake up Mm. the globe? Who's a winner and who's a loser? You know, there are certain, there's a, there's a certain reality in World War Z's, uh, context, uh, that, you know, island states do differently and do better than, than, you know, than other particular, you know, other polities and governments. Uh, similarly in, in Westeros, obviously, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a, you've lost the, the shake of the dice if you live in the far north. Yes. Um versus the Iron Islands, say. Um, so but but this sort of thinking just doesn't come out of nowhere. You have to practice it. And it doesn't matter if you're in a uniform or not, um you can get practice at it. Uh, by consuming film and fiction, I I do, and and I learned an awful lot in the in that's the. That's
0: Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. And um, if I I have one way I like to think about the bottom lines of of climate refugees and all that is that just. as simply as as i can put it is climate change is going to reduce the amount of land that exists or at least livable land and that that just says so much right there and if we take it back to game of thrones that's what's happening to the wildlings it's not just the white walkers as a army that's pushing them it's getting so cold that they can't stand it anymore and if we see uh, we're not exactly sure how much this will play out in the show, but in the books, it seems a little more like there'll be a little more detail to it all, and we'll see a lot more of that struggle. We'll see large amounts of populations starving and freezing, and then the spread of disease that comes when people are starving and packed in close quarters together. And uh, it's it's very much what you guys are talking about with diminishing resources, diminishing land, and uh, it's a it's a great allegory here. To go back to our conversation about Ned and his heroism, well, Matt, that is one of your chapters, and it's the chapter I focused most on for this interview. Uh, It's called Ned Stark, Hero of the Seven Kingdoms, and Why the Good Guys Win, in the End. Uh, You also wrote Epilogue, Down from the Citadel, Off the Wall, and You Know Something, Jon Snow, about the qualities of a strategic leader with uh, P.W. Singer. But I want to focus on the Ned Stark stuff, uh, especially because Max touched on it a bit as well. So... I want to say that this is a great topic for this fandom because people love discussing Ned's morality. He's often held up as uh, a true hero of the, sh- of the series, even though he's not in it very long. And that speaks to your point. He's not in it very long, but his legacy has lasted, and that is uh, a central issue here. So please tell us what inspired you about Ned and about his heroism and uh, all this related stuff.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought it up because I think it actually, it's one of the aspects of this story that's most useful in, in real life. And, you know, uh, Max is, you know, it, what's weird is that we're, we're in, in total agreement on, uh, his comments earlier about what got Micah killed. Um, Ned never was and never will be perfect. Uh, but I, but I do think that the way that he conducted his life, uh, has had a long shadow on the show and has influenced characters well beyond his lifespan. I, I was going to say natural mm-hmm. lifespan, but obviously it was yeah. natural lifespan. So for a lot of people, you know, he is essentially a fool, um, more heroic in his convictions than strategic at his core. You know, uh, and so you know, he was uh maybe, you know, some people just like what Circe said, he's just a soldier following orders. So he's just sort of mindlessly following orders right up to the gallows in his own beheading. Um but I I see him as, as something different. Um and I think that there are qualities in him about sort of heroes and good guys that actually translate off of the page and off of the screen. And it it helped me to better think through whether or not the good guys actually win. Like how should we think about heroes, um, in conflicts and at war? And if you peel that onion back pretty far, go to Charles Darwin. Um, Charles Darwin was when he was, uh, trying to understand, uh, species. He, he looked at, um, heroes, so to speak, that would protect others that were not from their own line. And he realized that if, if they were to sacrifice themselves for others, then that behavior would be punished and their line would die out. Um, and, you know, to, to some extent, uh, you kind of with Ned Stark, if you just look at him in an individual, single, lifespan context you know he he did the right thing quote unquote over the course of his life and you know that often got him in trouble or in the end perhaps got him executed but when you take a wider view and you look at humanity writ large uh, we are successful because we cooperate with other people in large groups that's the only way that you get the Great Wall of China, or you know, you get Hadrian's Wall, or you get, um, you know, uh, New York City to some extent. You know, all these these aspects of our culture and our civilization, and so you can actually see through Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson's work um, that humans are mostly successful because we're so social, and the the. There's a uh, some of us that lead within that context that are that are servant leaders of values and ideals, and uh, they choose again and again to serve others and ideas over themselves. And I think you get that with Ned Stark. He inspires others to carry on. He rallies allies to his side over time. Uh, he unifies others with his, his goodwill and his principled leadership. You know, he has a moral code and he didn't win in his lifetime in the classic sense. Uh, but others, um, his sons, and, and I kind of put that in quotes, you know, for John, but, um, kept on and th- those ideals, I think, did live on in Jon Snow and, uh, the good guys in, in, in a lot of ways, we see it on screen. The good guys usually do win in the end. It just takes a little <laughs> bit longer and it can get yeah. bloody. Um, but I, I think I see that in the real world too. You know, um, you, you know, look at the strategic board, uh, you know, uh, North Korea does not have, uh, does not have uh, allies knocking on the door, Pyongyang's door, to join up. You know, the United States is not and never will be perfect, uh, but we do have some guiding values that have attracted allies over time. So, I, I think that it functions not just on the human level, but on the societal yeah. level. Um, and, you know, Max and I were on a panel recently talking about this, and you know, he pointed out the difference between, uh, you know, two, two major figures in the 1960s, uh, second Lieutenant, uh, William Calley, who, uh, was the military officer in Vietnam that committed the Lai massacre. You know, people don't, people don't remember him or if they do, they've tried to forget his life and his example, but he, Lived he committed that horrible atrocity within just a few years of most of the most inspiring words that you could ever hear uh, from Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King lived far shorter than William Calley did, but Martin Luther King's inspiring life and ideas and value set have lived on, not just in a federal holiday but but you know with with people in a very real concrete way. So um i I think that we see the same thing. In the real world that we get out of Ned Stark He was never perfect uh, But I do think that he is Emblematic of the way that Heroes and the quote Good guys function that's a, in the really,
0: real world Yeah that's a really great way to say it and also If you look at their legacy like you said Ned's not in the story very long but people Are still fighting for his ideals In the books you have characters openly stating That their uh, their loyalty Is to this to To Ned's girl or what have you and it's also a little bit ironic, a little bit meta, in a sense, that you have, in a story of, that features quite a few, uh, well, quite a lot of the living dead, you have dead people's concepts living on, their, their, you know, their life lives on after them, even though they're not living. So that's just kind of an interesting little aspect of the series to look at. Um, well, Max, what do you think about... Uh, you've had some thoughts on Ned. Do you have any, uh, any thoughts on anything that uh, matches said, or any counterpoints or oh, anything like that?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no, most definitely, because I think that Ned, Ned is a good man in a bad yeah. system. And Ned believes in the rule of law. The problem is, in that system, the king is the law. And that's the problem. And that is exactly, literally, that is exactly why... When Matt took the oath of service, it was not to the president of the United States. It was to the Constitution. That is exactly why the founders of this country did those little things that just seem like uh, semantics on a piece of paper, but were critical for the time they grew up in. In the time they grew up in, the king was the law. And those who had the weapons, the armed forces, their blood oath was to one human being. And so, as a result, now our armed forces, their blood oath is to a piece of paper, and on that piece of paper is a set of ideals that live on forever. Yes. And that is why, literally, if Matt were given an illegal order, if Matt were given an order on, on the battlefield that is not constitutionally valid, Matt has a legal, not just a moral, but a legal duty to disobey. Because Matt's service is to the Constitution, and that is critical in the system that we have, as opposed to the system in Game of Thrones. So, and that's, that says something, that speaks volumes to why that system is bad in Game of Thrones. And that also speaks volumes to why we're having such a rough time spreading democracy throughout the world. Ned Stark never grew up with democracy. There was never a democratic time. Ned grew up during kings, he served kings, kings were all he knew. And that is the problem. This is why we were scratching our heads in Iraq, saying, why aren't people just loving democracy? Well, we never knew it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Dem-
2: Democracy takes generations. It takes grandparents talking to their grandchildren. It takes creating a reality that could be 100 years old mm. for people to say, no, 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 no. That's not right to have one person running things. I know in my bones because I grew up in a time when everybody had a voice. And if you're going to spread democracy to a dictatorship, you better be prepared to be there for a 100 years. It's the reason that the generation that grows up in Germany now has no memory of Hitler. Mm. And their parents have no memory of Hitler. But if we had left, let's say five years after World War II, if we said, all right, we did it, mission accomplished and gone home everybody in germany would have grown up during either hitler or the kaiser or a corrupt 20-year republic and they would have said okay let's go back to the way we we know and so ned stark had he grown up in a democratic system he wouldn't have just sighed and said "Eh, uh king take what he wants
0: yeah, he wouldn't just accept this reality as a reality. He would—he right. would realize there's an alternative, and in—in in his world, the only alternatives are these other forms of government in Essos, which aren't really that much better. Maybe they're slightly better in some no. ways, but they're not—they're not appealing to Ned Stark. No,
2: and you—and you use the perfect word, reality. In Ned Stark's mind, reality is good king or bad king. It never even occurs <laughs> to Ned Stark. No king. Because he's never seen that work. Yeah. Ned Stark never saw a functioning republic, and had he might, he would have said, hey, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. There's another way.
0: It's it's like the... And if he looks back in his own history, all he'll find is that, oh, before there were just more kings. The only difference is right. that there were everyone was more fractured instead of uh, one king, there were seven, and before that there were hundreds. And it just the farther back in time you go, you still have kings, and, and before that you just have... Th- Characters with similar titles that effectively mean <coughs> king, like lord or chieftain. Yes. Exactly. And that's
2: why, like, when I look at Daenerys's dragons, all I see is a flying Gestapo. <laughs> because when you study dictatorships, it's rule number one for the dictator to always have two armies. Mm. And that prevents a coup. Because you don't want the Unsullied suddenly turning their spears on you. You need someone to guard the guards. And that's why every dictator has always had a Waffen-SS or a KGB or the Savak, which was the Shah of Iran's secret police. And so those dragons are the only thing that guaranteed Daenerys's power base, which is exactly what dictators
0: do. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Matt, do you have any, uh, any rebuttals to any of that or anything else to add?
1: No, I mean, I, I love, it, 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 you know, when Max mentioned that the other day, uh, it blew my mind because I, it was a dimension that I, uh, that I genuinely uh, had never considered. I, I was looking at the dragons. Um, so there's actually a, a bit of a debate. Some people refer to the dragons as nuclear weapons to some extent. Uh, it, most of us in the strategic and military community see them as air power. Um, they're either for strategic bombing as at Harrenhal burn, you know, burning the fortification down Um or their air to air, which was the dance with dragons, yeah. Um, or, or which you know, which is dog fighting for dragons, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then, or uh, their close air support, and we've seen that a few times in the in the series. And uh, I'm actually just like everybody else at the edge of my seat to see what happens when we see the you know the blue eyed and the and the the blue eyed. Uh, dragon take on uh, his uh, I don't even know if you can call them brothers anymore yeah <laughs> dad. uh you know, like uh, I'm not sure what to call them anymore, but uh no i this is this is one of the things that you get out of a book with a lot of diversity um you you don't just get. Uh, diversity of chapters, you get diversity of ideas. And, you know, I, Max has got a lot of those and I love listening to them. So.
0: Right on. Yeah. That's, that is really coming out in this, in this podcast here as well. We're seeing a lot of different takes, things that agree, but are from a different perspective and some, you know, some disagreement as well, but mostly, uh, mostly just great conversation and something that really is, one other thing i want to point out uh, that's a common sort of touchstone that launch a launching point so to speak for discussions is something that you guys touched on both in these conversations just now which is the matter of perspective and you know you, we just now we put ourselves in ned stark's shoes and someone who would say well why doesn't ned Want democracy? Well, going through that exercise of putting ourselves in his shoes and thinking about his life and everything he's experienced, it doesn't make any sense for him to consider democracy. He's not uh, a kind of creative guy that would conceive of it on his own. That would be the only way that would ever come into his mind, unless somebody else somehow came along and hey said, "Hey Ned, check out this idea. What if everyone had a vote?" You know, and he might uh, come come around on that if 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 this were some sort of what if scenario, but initially it would some of these same sort of uh, things you talk about max is where it takes a long time for these systems to get accepted. And even if Ned were to accept it, it would take a lot for it to, to really last.
2: Oh, of course, because, because once you have a Republic, you then need to prove that it works. And that's what it really comes down to. I mean, there was a wonderful story. I think it was like the day after we pulled down Saddam Hussein's statue, uh, there was a, a young army officer saying that he was inundated by the citizens of the town asking who was going to take away their garbage <laughs> because suddenly the, the garbage collectors weren't showing up. And that's the thing is a, a, a republic only works if you make it work. So it's not just an idea. You have to get the lead out of the water in Flint, Michigan. You have to get jobs. You have to get health care. You have to do all these things. And when a republic doesn't do that, Then a strong man comes forward and says, I'll do it. Or at the very least, promises he'll do it. Mm -hmm. And that's why you get kings. That's where kings come from. You know, I'll do it and so that yeah i'm
0: sorry go on i was just going to say just yeah. add as an interjection and this exact even and even under different auspices this has happened like rome was so anti-king but they still got sulla and caesar <laughs> you know they had all these well, right. things in place and it still just they, yeah it still just happened
2: oh it's it's the hardest thing in the world to keep and it's so hard not to be corrupted by power. The more power you give, the more people want to hold on to. And this is what I write about in my chapter is, let's say, John Eris. They they marry, and they have a wonderful incest relationship, and <laughs> they rule the kingdoms. Uh, but then what's to happen from them 30 years from now becoming corrupt? Because most dictators don't start out as bloodthirsty tyrants. They start out as young, gorgeous, charismatic freedom fighters young Fidel Castro, young Robert Mugabe, young Muammar Gaddafi, all of them started out as people who just wanted good for their people. They were all Jon Snow. And then 30 years later, oh, God, that's what power does to you?
0: Hmm. What's amazing to me, too, is how often the characters in the story come so close to realizing this. At one point, Catelyn, is upset with Rob for writing John into his will, for naming John his heir, and Catelyn is upset with that because it's okay, let's say you can trust John, but what about his grandkids? Won't they, maybe oh. they'll come for your grandkids. And sh- at no point does she stop to think of, oh, it's the system that's messed up. I mean, you know, it- it's fair for her not to think of that. Why would she? It's, it's, it's like, just like Ned, it's never been a thing in her, in her worldview. But, The elements are there. George gives us that. He shows us that you know all all the different ways that this impacts people, and they're not—they don't even realize how they're suffering. No,
2: and even if you do have a great emperor to the day they die, like you said, you don't know what's coming next. You know, the Romans prospered under Caesar Augustus. He was an amazing emperor till the day he died, but he set in place a system that was eventually going to give you Nero, who burned (laughs) Rome to the ground
0: yeah it's so true. I mean all his great efforts, and you're right this the system just fell apart because of uh, these these I almost you want to call them not loopholes but these unaddressed uh, systematic problems and well, as you, you set said, the
2: wheel in motion you know, yeah. once you set that wheel in motion, you can't tell who it's going to run over
0: mm-hmm and like you said, that power is so enticing and corrupting once they have it, and people will do anything to keep it. And uh, that's the problem with giving them too much power in the first place. And, of course, a king, who has more power than a king? Not, not many people. No. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's, let's take a, tackle a couple other simple, quick questions, and then we'll wrap it up. Because there's so many authors and so many topics, we've touched on how many things that I'm sure there were some of the some of the topics and issues raised to some of the other authors that you hadn't considered. Are there any that you'd like to illuminate right now, something from some of the other chapters that stood out to you, something that you think would be uh, interesting to the listeners, maybe to encourage more uh, interest in the book in general?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, for me, it's just as important, the lessons on the, on, on valuing and holding on to the democracy we have. I think watching this show really gives you a sense for really how terrible, truly terrible war is. It, it, you know, it demands death, real people, innocent people, good people die. You know, and, and it's in the worst, most tragic ways. And we see it in the show, like Micah, we were just talking about that. But when I was in Iraq in 2003, uh, a tank driver in my unit uh, was drowned when the tank he was in was rolling through the desert. It it popped up the lip uh, up kind of a sand dune and then went nose down in a wadi, which is like a big puddle like a, a big you know body, small body of water in the middle of the desert. And it it got stuck and he drowned in the in inside the hatch. Oh, um, you know, I mean that's. That's every bit as randomly cruel as what you get sometimes out of the show. And if a character in the show that you really like and you really start to care for dies, you get a fraction of a sense of what it's really like to be part of war. And I've mentioned this to Max before. I wanted to, but I didn't get the chance to dedicate the book to Hodor. Uh. (laughs) uh, Because... Because I, I don't know if this is clear. You know, fans are going to have a, a more precise understanding of this than me. Deep, deeper fans, that is. Um, but I think he had a glimpse of and knew what would come at the end of his life and what it would cost him. Hmm. Now, I, I can imagine that I, I, that's what I interpreted out of that scene in the, the on screen. Uh, I, I you know, like I, I don't know for sure. Um, but he still, <laughs> Let's just assume that that's true for a moment. He still held the door closed and held evil back to protect other people. And for me, right now, I look out at the world, and there's a quarter of a million Americans serving overseas, uh, guarding places like the DMZ in Korea, our wall, where I was a couple years ago, and all of them have that instinct for service, and many of them are willing to sacrifice for others like Hodor was yeah um they for me like they, it's, it's characters like that and people like that are why i we should really sort of pay attention just a little bit harder to the the conflicts that that our country is a part of in the world and I think that that feeling that sense is hidden in plain sight on screen in in the show so that's the thing that I really like matters the most to me when I watch this show
0: okay, yeah, great take. Uh, and what about you max what do you think? Well, I would,
2: personally, I would dedicate the show to my favorite character, which is the guy that get hit, gets hit by the flying bell when the tower blows up.
0: <laughs> Poor guy. Talk about because, random, right?
2: Yeah, well, and random. I mean, as, as going back to my initial meeting with George R. R. Martin, when he talks about his characters make bad choices, and those bad choices help drive the story. But what about the people who don't get a choice? And that yeah. happens in war. And that happens in dictatorship, where uh, you become an extra in someone else's story. I mean, basically, we talk about, oh, Game of Thrones, there's so many characters. Well, not in a cast of millions. Yeah. <laughs> if this, if this were In this giant show that is a war, there's only about two dozen speaking parts, and everybody else is an extra. It's so true. And that's what happens. So that's who I would dedicate it to. And I also think that, I think one of the important metaphors we haven't touched on is the night's watch and the volunteer service.
0: Okay, yeah. And I think, this
2: is, I, I think this is a really important theme. Because as a civilian, you know, we're, we're living in this nine, post-9-11 world with this bullshit phrase, thank you for your service. <laughs> right? And, and let's be honest. For a lot of us who don't want to admit it, this country does not want to admit it. But thank you for your services code for better you than me. Mm. And because we have a volunteer service, they're not our sons anymore. They're not our fathers, our mothers, our brothers, our friends, our neighbors. They're not us anymore. They're superheroes on the screen that we watch and worship from afar, but really don't care about. Mm. And there's a reason we're involved in seven major wars right now. Because it's not we anymore. It's they. And so in the show, when they send people to the Night's Watch, it's really because they don't have anything else to do with their lives. Hmm. It's sort of the metaphor for like the losers. You sort of send the people with no other options to join the Night's Watch. And I'm sorry, but that is, I think, is a horrible, sh- a blight, a shame on our society because that's part of the narrative that you only join the army if you're some crazed redneck who likes to blow stuff up, or if you have no other options, and I literally saw that on Modern that, and Family, and it's so
0: not true. I mean, just <laughs> it's you're right. That's a no, perception, but it's, it's so not. It's, you're right. That you're 100 percent right that that is a common perception. But yeah, it's. it's
2: did it's you bad. see that episode of Modern Family when Luke, the loser kid, can't get into college, and his mother's like, "Well, you can always join uh, the army."
0: I didn't, but that's. I'm sure was, I've seen that sentiment no. elsewhere on another sitcom, probably. Yeah
2: yeah, that's that's the sentiment. and it's and it is a hundred percent wrong. I'm sure there are kids who join the military because they don't have anything else to do. But then I meet guys like Matt who had the world at his fingertips. Yes, and he gave it up to serve. And I meet these people all the time. And so I think the metaphor for the night's watch is is a really painful but necessary mirror. We need to hold up to ourselves and ask ourselves as civilians, How do we
0: really see those who protect Mm, us? That's a great question. Hmm. You guys have covered uh, Star Wars, like you said, in a similar manner, and now this is uh, maybe, would you say this is a a bit of a bigger project for Game of Thrones or um, something along those lines? Uh, Well, it felt like after the first part. you know, (laughs) when you write, it's often a a fairly
1: solitary activity. I, I write quite a bit and actually writes quite a bit. This was the most collaborative project I've ever done by a, by a long stretch. Um, it was like getting the most, you know, you know, when you're younger and you're a student and you're in a group project with three or four people, that seems difficult. I mean, this was like that on steroids. Mm. It, so, uh, it felt like climbing a mountain, uh, to, to do strategy strikes back. How Star Wars explains modern military conflict. To do it a second time was kind of like standing at the bottom of the mountain, uh, having already climbed it and already gotten back down, and looking back up at the top and saying, "Yeah, now it's time to climb." <laughs> uh, so I'm very, like, I'm, I'm, I, this was truly uh, a fun project, but it it was not always uh, my my favorite thing to do. So I'll, uh, but I, <laughs> I'm grateful for the ideas to be out in the world. I'll put it that way.
0: That's right amazing. on. Yeah. I have worked on book projects with multiple people before as well, not 30 people, which is part of why I was so amazed, because I know what it's like to work with eight other people, and it's hectic, so I can hardly imagine. That's four times more people, which is just, that blows my mind.
2: (laughs) Matt's audience was primarily military, and I think from a military point of view, the challenge is trying to convince the established warrior class that fiction is valuable to their trade Hmm. from a civilian point of view my challenge is trying to convince my fellow civilians why they need to learn about strategy Uh. because this is a very common thread uh we were literally told after 9 11 that the only obligation we had as voters and taxpayers as americans was to pray hug our kids and go shopping and that was it and Hmm. that's why we find ourselves in this problem we have been divorcing ourselves from our own national interests really for half a century and then it really hit the watershed moment after 9-11 but this sheep sheepdog model is not working especially Hmm. now we are up against countries like Russia and China that are marshaling the resources of their entire nation to roll back democracy. And we just saw this in our election. Russia was able to damage our democracy in ways that the Nazis and the Japanese in World War II could have only dreamed. And they did it without firing a shot. And this goes to the core of being in a democracy. Because in those dictatorships, you get to blame the government. We don't. You don't get to say the government because we are the government. And so we have an obligation, a duty, and we're not supposed to say that in America. We are supposed to live for ourselves every minute of every day. (laughs) But we do have a duty to understand the big picture. We have to understand the world we live in and the issues that trickle down into our little lives. And if we don't do that, we're not going to make good choices at the ballot box. And then we're going to elect leaders that take us down the wrong path. So as taxpayers and as voters, i.e. as citizens, we need to learn about strategy. And by the way, maybe if we actually learned about war, maybe we'd have a few less wars.
0: Yeah. I mean, learning about the strategy of war does also reveal its difficulties and all the challenges, and it allows people to, to stop with the simple, oh, we're the biggest military in the world. We shouldn't have any trouble, that kind of sentiment right. like that, where we're just rolled, where they expect us to roll over countries, even though that's almost never how it works. So look at our history. Right. It's, it's always been complicated.
2: And maybe um, if we learned more about wars when it came time to push that button as voters – we would learn to understand the difference between wars of necessity and wars of convenience. Yeah. You know, maybe we'd be able to push back on our leadership when they tell us, hey, 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 we gotta do this. And we <laughs> say, no, no, no. No, no, no. Not this one. That war was necessary. This war is bullshit.
0: Well, it may sound trite to say, but Education is uh, a key that comes from all that, and one of the best ways to educate oneself is to read more. And, well, good way to wrap this up is by re-recommending the book we've been talking about for the last hour or so, Winning Westeros, How Game of Thrones Explains Modern Military Conflict. Again, you can pre-order it now, and I hope we've inspired you to check it out. There's so many great discussions to be had from within the book from within uh other people talking with you about it and with some of the things we've already discussed there's just a lot to dig into and i'm i'm enjoying it myself like i said i haven't finished it but uh, i'm looking forward to reading the rest and uh maybe i'll send you guys some messages with some of my thoughts about uh some of this other cool stuff that i read will probably inspire me on some podcast topics as well so everyone's winning well thanks very much for coming guys
1: Aziz, uh, thank you so much. History of Westeros is clearly for huge fans of Game of Thrones, but uh, I think both Max and I are now huge fans of history of Westeros, so we'll be listening uh, definitely through the rest of the season. Thank you so much.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for saying so. Thanks to you too, Max. Thanks, man. This is great. Well, everybody, uh, check us out next time, and be sure to check out Winning Westeros. Thanks to my guests for coming today. And I would I normally sign off by saying Valar rereatis, but in this case we'll just say Valar reitus because no one has read this book yet. And <laughs> we'll see you all. <laughs> we'll see you all next time. Thanks again.